So we're in the Gospel of John chapter 11, verses 1 through 244, and John is a fascinating book. If I haven't met you, by the way, my name's Travis, I'm the college and career pastor here on staff. And so on Thursday nights, I get to hang out with the 18 to 28-year-olds at the church, uh, walking through Scripture, wrestling uh, with all of the life situations that come during that time. And together, we've been walking through John's Gospel now for six or seven months. We started in December, so we're coming up on seven months in John. If you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice that John is fairly different. It's telling the same story, but it's looking at it from a different angle. This is likely because John is the last of the Gospels written sometime between 90 and 100 AD. In church architecture, John's Gospel is symbolized by an eagle. Uh, Maybe you've noticed this before. If you walk into an old church building, a cathedral, or anything really that's more old-fashioned, You'll notice these four animals tend to adorn church buildings. They're based on the living creatures in Ezekiel. There's a man, an ox, a lion, and an eagle, symbolizing the four Gospels. And the eagle symbolizes John's Gospel, because way back when, it was believed that eagles could stare into the sun without going blind. And there's a sense when you read this Gospel that John has stared into the fires of heaven itself and has come to write down what he's seen. John's gospel is very often broken up into three sections when when scholars look at it. You won't find these sections in your Bible, but there seems to be almost three movements to the story of John. There's what's called the prologue, which has the, the famous section that we talk about during Christmas, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then there's the middle section, really from chapter 1 to chapter 11, that's very often called the book of signs. And it's called that because it's the section of John's gospel in which most of Jesus' miracles take place. Not all of Jesus' miracles. John says at the end of his gospel, Jesus did way more than what I've written down, but these things are written so that you might believe. And then you move to the final section of John's gospel, which, in which Jesus sort of sets his face towards the cross. Now, now, we're spending our time together this morning in that middle section, the very end of that middle section, the book of signs. And it's worth, it's worth thinking about and it's worth recognizing that John does not record the miracles of Jesus as some sort of like a collection of interesting magic tricks. He doesn't go, hey, isn't this neat? This guy walked on water. Take that surface tension. Right? That's, that's not the purpose of him including things like this. No, the reason why John includes the miracles of Jesus in his gospel is because Jesus has been saying some ridiculous things. He's been claiming to have the power to forgive sins. He's been saying things like, before Abraham was, I am, as if to say, I've always existed. And people are going, are you sure about that? Because I know where you were born and I know your parents. Jesus is taking the name of God and applying it to himself, I am, the name that God reveals in the burning bush to Moses in the book of Exodus. And when you make ridiculous statements, you have to back it up. There's that question that everybody's been asked, prove it. I remember when I was in switching from the sixth to the seventh grade, I also switched schools. I went from a private Christian school to a public school, and I learned what the real world was like. And in that transition, I I switched to a school that my cousin went to, but she was the only person I knew. And she didn't have my lunch break, and I didn't have any classes with her, so it was like functionally useless. I went to the school not knowing anybody. And I remember the first day of lunch at this school, walking into the lunchroom and seeing the sea of people and going, I have to sit somewhere and I don't know anyone. 
and I don't know where to start. And so I just kind of picked a table of people who looked like they would be nice, and I sat down with them. And I don't even know how the conversation started, but the guy next to me and I started talking, so what do you do for fun? I was like, I like to draw, because I did at the time, because I actually thought I was good at it at the time, and then life caught up with me. And I said, what about you? What do you do? And he launches into the most ridiculous story I've ever heard, because he tells me that on the weekends, he is a race car driver, and he drives this race car every weekend, making $10,000 every time he wins. And he's like, this weekend, actually, I was, I was on like my last lap, and this, this car in front of me spun out, and I had to swerve past it, and I made it to the finish line. And then, I, you know, I, obviously, I made the $10,000 that I make whenever I win these races. And then I loaded my car back up, and yeah, I'll be, I'll be back at the Speedway next weekend. Guys, I really wanted friends. So I was willing to suspend disbelief and go, oh, cool, how long have you been driving for? Like, how fast does your car go? <laughs> but in the back of my mind, I'm like, this kid's 11. He can't even get a learner's permit. This is obviously a lie, but I'm willing to negotiate for the sake of friendship. Until the other guy at the table who I came to know over the course of the year just goes, Stephen says this every single weekend. You can't even shave, man. There's no way you drive a race car. Why don't you prove it? Prove it. What you're saying is absurd. You're an 11-year-old. You don't drive a race car. I'll believe you if you've got some evidence. That's exactly what's happening in John's gospel. Jesus is saying some really wild things. And so in the middle, John includes these miracles of Jesus as if to say, here's how he proved that what he was saying was true. He wasn't just saying it. In chapter 11, we find Jesus at the ultimate prove-it moment the last great sign of Jesus to confirm what he's saying before he goes to the cross. It's a famous passage. Let's read the beginning of it now. Would you hear the word of the Lord? It says this in John 11, 1 through 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. So we step into this scenario. We don't know where Jesus is, but he's a couple days away from where some of the significant events in this story are taking place. And Jesus receives word from a family that has some prominence in the Gospels. Mary, Martha, their brother Lazarus. If you've been around the church, you've heard these names. They make appearances in all of the Gospels. They seem to be pretty close friends of Jesus, which is in and of itself just worth thinking about. Because if you've been around the church, it's easy to develop this picture of Jesus in which he exists in isolation on a stained glass window. And yet when you, when you make contact with the Gospels themselves, it is abundantly clear that Jesus is not just truly God, but he is truly human as well. That means Jesus had friends. It means Jesus had people that he liked to spend time with. That means Jesus ate dinner with these people. He probably laughed at their jokes. He might not have laughed at all of them because some of them might not have been funny. He knows these people. He loves these people. And he receives some awful news. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. 
to let him know that Lazarus is sick. But the way that they announce this is really interesting. In verse 3, the messenger says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. It's a strange way to say that. It's strange because at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has opened the eyes of the blind, he's caused the lame to walk, he's healed all sorts of afflictions, he's walked on water. It's preposterous to think his friends don't know at least about some of this. They don't know that Jesus can do all this. They know, they're perfectly aware. And yet they don't say to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill, please come fix it. They don't say to Jesus, Lazarus is sick, come help. All they say is, Lord, the one you love is ill. Why is that? Augustine, in commenting on this passage, the bishop of Hippo in the fourth century, he says this, the reason why all they say is the one you love is ill is because Mary and Martha know Jesus is not someone who loves and then deserts the one that he loves. They know that if someone is loved by Jesus, Jesus will do what is right. And all that is necessary is for Jesus to know that this person you care about is suffering and they trust in the goodness and love of Jesus that that love will not abandon that person. Now that's a simple truth. That's like a fundamental gospel truth, I think, in a lot of ways. And yet that is the single most difficult reality for me to wrap my mind around in the Christian life. I struggle massively with that. I don't, I don't struggle intellectually with the idea that God exists. I've worked that through philosophically. I've heard all sides of the argument. That's not really in question for me anymore. I don't even struggle in some sense with the idea that God is good, even when bad things happen. It's, it's easy for me to go, at the end of all this, after all the bad, when Jesus wraps all of it up, I will understand why it happened and it will be good. That's easy for me. I don't even struggle with the idea that in some sense God loves me in some vague out there sense. But this idea that God loves me enough to do what is right for me and that I can trust him, that is nearly impossible for me to wrap my mind around. Probably a month to a month and a half ago, I had some health scares. Uh, the doctor made some passing comments that my brain took and ran with. And I was convinced that everything, everything was coming apart. I was fully convinced that something really, really bad was about to happen. And I remember um, having a conversation with my then girlfriend, now fiance, and saying to her, my life is finally good. Like, it's finally good, and God is about to crush me like Job. <laughs> Things are finally good, and he's about to just smash me. And she looked at me and she said, Travis, you know that's not the character of the God we serve. That's not what he's like. And I needed to be reminded of that because in that moment I was convinced that that was what he was like. And I, I'm not saying that just because we are loved by God that everything will always be perfect. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what the scriptures teach but Mary and Martha have the sort of confidence that we need to have that if we are loved by God, it is enough to know he loves us and that he doesn't abandon the ones he loves. And yet, here's what happens when Jesus receives that news. We're told in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he came as quickly as he possibly could. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, 
He snapped his fingers, and Lazarus was healed instantly like the centurion's son. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he said, there's this physician named Luke who's going to write a couple books about me that you should see, and he'll fix it. That's not what happens next. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I have pounded my head against this passage because it does not make sense when you first read it. It's like John bends over backwards to say Jesus loved these people so, so, so much. He loved Mary, he loved Martha, he loved Lazarus, he loved them. And so he waited until Lazarus died before he showed up. Because that's exactly what happens. Jesus spends two more days, just enough time for Lazarus to expire. I I don't presume to fully understand this, and yet... As I was talking with my friend Corey, who I share an office with, serves in college ministry with us, as we were just talking about this passage over the last few weeks, he made such a brilliant point. He said, it seems as though there are times where Jesus loves us enough to let us come to the end of ourselves. There are times where the love of Jesus is most fully expressed by him not stepping in and fixing it right away. There are times where that is the way in which Jesus loves us. It's not by solving all our problems, but by letting us sink, letting us die. The, the clearest that I ever experienced this in my life was sometime around 2014, 2015. I have, for as long as I can remember, struggled with obsessive compulsive thoughts and anxiety to, to the point in high school where I was washing my hands until they bled. And that has, that has come and gone over the course of my life. There are times in which it's really, really bad, and there's times in which it's like it's not even there, and I think that I'm, I'm finally free of it. In 2014, something in my brain snapped. And, and I don't know what it was, and I don't know what caused it, but I had had all of these questions about Christianity. How, how does this make sense? How do these verses not contradict? How do you answer this question? And I'd always been able to go, oh, whatever, I'll figure it out one day. I'm sure there's a good answer out there. Eventually, I'll find it. Something snapped in 2014, and I couldn't do that anymore. Because the obsessive thoughts that caused me to wash my hands until they bled started cycling on all these questions. And then the questions compounded. And I kept saying, if I have an answer to this one, then I'll be fine. But as soon as I had an answer to that one, the answer didn't work anymore, and I wanted a better answer. And then I'd get a better answer, and then the other question would come up. It was like trying to keep beach balls under the water at the pool. And it got worse and worse and worse until I found myself in the doctor's office going, you need to medicate me because I can't shut my brain off, and I'm spiraling out of control. I went days without sleeping. I felt like I was dying. And the great thing about medication for this sort of stuff is that it causes you to gain weight, which makes you even more sad, and so then you eat your feelings at checkers, like I did. (laughs) And so you can look at the... Well, here's a fun experiment. Watch my sermon from 2015, the first time I preached here. That's what was going on in my head. I was spiraling out of control. I was going days without, without sleeping. And I remember sitting at the kitchen counter in my living room, with my, or in, my, in my kitchen, with my Bible open, having just read, I don't know how many Psalms, not feeling anything, and, and saying to God, looking at the ceiling of my apartment and going, I've read this book. I know what it says about you. I know what it says about your character. I know what it says about your sovereignty. I know you can fix this because you raised the dead. Turn my brain off. Make it stop. Throw a wrench in the gears. Fix this. Do something. And I've never heard the audible voice of God. 
I didn't hear it then. But in the, the closest that I've ever come to it, Jesus said, not yet. I'm not going to do it yet. And it wasn't two more days for me before Jesus showed up, before the gears stopped turning. It's like two more years of that. And yet, when I look back on it, that season in which I felt like I was dying, and I kept saying, the one you love is ill. Jesus let me die, and I can tell you now that it was because he loved me. It was a grace that didn't feel like it at the time. Because every time I talk about this with college students, every time I mention this in a sermon on a Thursday night, I have college students come up to me and go, I'm going through that exactly right now. I walk with a limp. I still walk with a limp because of those experiences. And yet, it's from those wounds that I'm able to minister to other people. It was a grace that did not feel like one. So I don't, I don't know where you are. I don't know what is dying in you right now. I don't know what, what situation is going on in which you, you feel this death and you're saying, the, the one you love is ill, God. Come help. Can I just tell you, I know it doesn't feel like it, but sometimes Jesus loves us enough to wait two more days and asks that you trust that he is not one to love and abandon those he loves. Jesus finally shows up. Look at what it says in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and so many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. Mary remained seated in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Don't miss what's said in verse 17. Because in verse 17, we're told that Jesus arrives four days after Lazarus has been in the tomb. That's not inconsequential. Uh, Jesus waits two days. It takes him two days to get there. Lazarus has been gone for that whole span of time. Um, in our culture, we've got sort of some superstitions that I don't think many of us really believe, but we kind of believe. Like if you break a mirror, then it's like seven years bad luck. Or if you walk under a ladder... Uh, something bad happens to you. I don't know what it is. We like vaguely think that. But what we know from reading some of the Jewish writings in Jesus' day is that there were some hardcore superstitions that, that people in Jesus' day believed, especially about death. Namely, that when a person died, the soul left the body but hovered above it trying to get back in for the first two to three days. There's two to three days of the soul lingering over the body, trying to get back in. This is just what people believed. It's not that it was true, but that's what everyone was convinced of. So Jesus shows up on the fourth day when the soul has gone to the place of the dead, when there is nothing left of Lazarus. For the first three days, Mary and Martha could have sat at the tomb and said, there's some piece of him there. There's something left of him. There is something there. Lazarus is still with us in some sort of way, but on the fourth day, he is gone. And there is no hope. And you can feel it in, in, in Martha's words. She says, if you'd been here, my, my brother wouldn't have died. And, and it's not just that. It's not if you'd come four days earlier and you healed them. But it's like, even if you came yesterday, you could have re-glued what came unstuck. There was some hope if you'd just shown up. But it's gone now. He's gone. He's not coming back. This is a hopeless situation. 
Jesus shows up on the fourth day. As if to say to Mary and to Martha and to each and every one of us that there is no death that is beyond resurrection. That there is no such thing as too far gone. That there is no grave so deep that the voice of life, the voice of Christ cannot call life out of it. Listen, that matters for you and I in the, in the dark seasons of life. When we feel like it's too far gone, when we feel like it's the fourth day, there's no hope left. Jesus is the God who shows up on the fourth day and brings resurrection. So whether it's, it's sickness and the hopelessness that comes with that, whether it's depression and anxiety and, and, and the weight that, that you feel around that, believe me, I know it well. Or whether it's sin, like whether there, there are mistakes you've made and sins you've, you've wrestled with and you feel like you have gone so far that there is no hope of you coming out of it and so you've just decided this tomb is where I'm going to live. Jesus is the God who brings resurrection on the fourth day when it seems all but impossible. Jesus arrives on the fourth day, but feel the weight of the grief that's happening here. Mary and Martha both say the same thing. You see in verse 28, that Mary says to her sister, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard this, she arose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she had gone to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to Jesus, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Can you, can you feel the humanity in that statement. I don't know if you're like me, but when things go wrong in my life, one of the first and least helpful things that I do is I trace the, the stream of events back that led to it, and I go, what was the point of no return? Like, what was the place at which if I'd turned left instead of right, I could have avoided all of this? And I go, why didn't I make that decision? And then I torture myself over it. Or if I, there was no way that I could have known, I go, God, why didn't you push me in the right direction. Like, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you act? That's exactly what Mary says to Jesus. If you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. Where were you? But look at how Jesus responds. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her were also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. That phrase, come and see, if you've read John's gospel, it should sound familiar to you because it gets repeated over and over and over again. It's how Jesus calls the disciples. He says, come and see. It's how Philip calls Nathaniel to be a disciple of Jesus. He says, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel goes, nothing good comes from Nazareth. And Philip says, come and see. It's, it's an invitation to behold the glory of God. It's an invitation to see the saving work of Christ. It's an invitation to see the power of God revealed in Jesus every time in John's gospel, except for here. Except for here. Because instead of Jesus inviting people to come and see, Mary is inviting Jesus to come and see. And she's not inviting him to come and see anything good. She's inviting him to come look at the grave of her brother. She's inviting him to come look at the most horrible thing that's ever happened to her. 
She's inviting him to come see the thing that has destroyed their family. She's saying, I need you to come and see this. Listen, you need to know in the Christian life, you have the freedom to invite Jesus to come and see your pain. And that he's not going to resist that. He's not going to flinch at it. You have to know that you can say to Christ in prayer, come and see this thing that is ruining me. And you have to know how Jesus reacts here and how Jesus reacts whenever we invite him to see the pain in our lives. Because you come now to the shortest verse in the whole of scripture. Mary says, come and see. Come look at this nightmare scenario that is destroying me. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus in the face of the pain of Mary and Martha. You need to know that too. No matter what you're going through, when we invite the Lord to come and see these things, he weeps. He doesn't stand at a distance. He's not far off from our pain. He's not indifferent to it. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen here. It's not like Jesus is crying because he's like, I don't know what to do. Jesus knows what's going to happen, and yet he weeps at the brokenness that sin brings about in the lives of the people he loves. Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. He weeps at our brokenness and sin. And the Jews say to this in verse 36, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Which is a fair question. In verse 38, Jesus was deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. And I wonder if this, in this moment, Jesus knew that this was the exact fate that was awaiting him. In the tomb, that was a cave with a stone in front of it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. So my apartment under the living room has a crawl space that's at, at best maybe six inches above the ground. So the only thing crawling under there are like mice. A couple weeks ago, something crawled under it and didn't crawl back out. And I noticed this when my bathroom started to smell. And I thought to myself, that's not entirely out of the ordinary. <laughs> but then the living room started to smell. And then the kitchen started to smell. And then there was nowhere I could go where I couldn't smell it. Now, I say this not to just tell you a gross story about what happened at my apartment. I say this because it underscores this reality. Whenever scripture talks about the consequences of sin, one of the most profound of them is death. This is what the Lord says to Adam and Eve when he, he kicks them out of the garden. He says, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Cursed is the ground because of you. And death is ugly. Death is repulsive. There's a reason why we roll our windows up when we drive past roadkill. There's a reason why we don't look at it there's a reason why there's an entire industry that's built around the idea of papering over the reality of death so we don't think about it until it's right in front of us. The consequences of sin are ugly. And we'd rather not look at them. And this is exactly what's happening here in the story of Lazarus. As Jesus says, show me where you've laid him. And they go, Jesus, you don't want to see how ugly this is. 
Jesus says, roll away the stone, and they go, you don't want to smell this. You don't want to see how dark this really is. You don't want to see how bleak this is. I want to protect you from that. And this is what happens when we repent so often is we take the things that aren't so bad and we hold them out to Jesus and go, yeah, I repent of this, but then we go, there's a whole lot behind this stone that you don't want to see. We never fully repent because we're so afraid of the ugliness of our sin and it leaves us in the tomb with the stone in front of us. Jesus is not afraid of that. Jesus is not afraid of the darkness of your depravity. Jesus is not afraid of the ugliness of sin. He says, roll away the stone. There's a, an Anglican theologian who I've, I've come to really appreciate, and he writes on issues of, of gender and sexuality, and he, he talks about uh, so many of his struggles and, and wrestling, and he wrestled in the dark. He didn't talk about it. He wouldn't share what he was going through with people until one day he finally talked to his, one of his roommates about what was going on, and, and the roommate said, Wes, ignoring this is not the path to redeeming it. You need to roll away the stone. You've got to let Jesus see this. And so Jesus tells them, roll away the stone. Show me Lazarus. He says that to us. Roll away the stone. Let me see all of it. It's the only way resurrection can come. And then finally, they roll away the stone in verse 41. And Jesus lifts his eyes up to heaven and he first speaks to the Father and he says, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But you said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Jesus first speaks to the Father and then he casts his voice somewhere else. And uh, there's a sense in which this is speculative, but I don't think I'm off the mark. Who knows what the last thing that Lazarus heard was? before the full weight of sin dealt its full blow and took his life from him. Who knows if it was the sound of Mary and Martha weeping? Who knows if it was the sound of his wife sobbing because he was likely married? Who knows if it was the doctor saying, this is it, he's gone? Who knows what the last thing Lazarus heard was before death ruined him? But the first thing Lazarus hears in the grave is the voice of Jesus calling him out of it. Lazarus. Come forth. Lazarus, step out of the tomb. Lazarus, leave this death behind. And in that moment, the voice that calls the stars into being from non-being, the word that was with God and was God through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made, that voice calls Lazarus' spirit back to his body and banishes death from the tomb of Lazarus. Can I tell you that that voice, the voice of Jesus, is still issuing this call to you and I in the grave of sin, in the grave of darkness, in the grave of depression, in the grave of despair. Jesus continues to say to us, come forth. Come out of the grave. It's, it's, it's what's spoken over you in baptism. When, whenever I baptize somebody, I say, you have been buried with Christ in his death and you are lowered into the tomb of the water. But you don't stay there. You come back out. And the first thing you hear when you come out of that tomb is you've been raised to walk in newness of life. It's as if Jesus in baptism says the same thing to you. Come forth. Come out of the tomb. Travis, come forth. Darnisha, come forth. Stephen, come forth. 
Step into resurrection life. So I don't know where you are right now. I don't know if it's sin. I don't know if it's sickness. I don't know if it's darkness or depression or anxiety. The voice of Jesus is the same for all of us. Come forth. Be unbound from these grave clothes. Walk in resurrection life. We want to reflect on this together as we continue in worship. So let me invite you to stand and let's sing in response to the truths of Holy Scripture. By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of David. The resurrected King is back to when we came to the Lord's Supper together this morning. Uh, I referenced uh, some words from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says that whenever we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And what we know from Revelation is that when Jesus comes again, the voice that called Lazarus from the tomb will call all of creation out of the bondage of sin and death. That, that you will hear the voice of Jesus say, come forth. And not only will you come forth from the grave, but all of God's creation. Death will be banished. There will be no more weeping, no more gnashing of teeth, there will be no more grave clothes. There will be white robes and there will be a feast. A celebration of resurrection. That is the Christian hope. That is the fullness of the gospel. May you leave with that in your heart and in your mind and in your ears and walk in resurrection life now knowing that that is the end of all things. That Lazarus is a foretaste the resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste that all who have been buried with Christ in his death will be raised to walk in newness of life. And that begins now as the Spirit raises you from the darkness of sin and despair and into resurrection life that anticipates the final reality, the culmination of all things, the end of God's creation in which he dwells among us. And there are no more tombs. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next week.